Hello, and welcome to Preston. Yes, here we are, Preston, Jodcast on tour. The Jodcast. Field reporting at its finest. From the National Astronomy Meeting, Day 1. Welcome to the National Astronomy Meeting 2007, Preston, University of Central Lancashire. Stuart, it's been an interesting day already. It has. It's been, well, I think it's been a very long day. I'm quite tired already. And this is only the first day of the week. Yeah, so you just stepped off a plane or something like that from... Yeah, I had a very long journey to get here for this, but it's been worth it. The meeting actually started at midday. Um, There was a time for registration in the morning to allow everyone to arrive. Um, And then from around... There was a nice lunch. There was a very nice lunch. So I guess we should tell people what NAM is. Yep, and here's Robert Massey of the Royal Astronomical Society to tell us more. Well, NAM is uh, this great meeting that happens each year. It's the National Astronomy Meeting, and this year it's bringing more than 520 astronomers from all over the UK to right here in Preston, which in itself is quite an achievement. I think you'll agree, but, you know, look around you. It's a crowded venue. Um, We're here fairly late at night, and there's a lot of people around here. And most of the time, they're, they're, believe it or not, doing quite a lot of the time talking about research. Yeah, and they're also um, socialising as well. I think that's, that's a large part of these meetings, isn't it? it? It really is. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, of course, everybody wants to come to these things. They've done a day's listening to the talks and everything. They're feeling pretty, feeling pretty tired. But the nice thing is that although it's on a completely different low level and obviously everybody gossips and all the things that you do because you're human and you enjoy a night out, people do actually talk a bit about the work they're doing as well. And that's why going out socialising is just as important a part of the conference as sitting listening to the lectures. So all the best and the brightest in the UK are here to talk about their research. We will be interviewing them throughout the week. We've already got a few interviews. We need to edit those. So stay tuned. They'll, they'll pop up on the web as they become ready. Uh, first, but uh, to, to let you know what we've done so far, we've spoken with Scott Fisher from the Gemini Telescopes and also Lisa Green, who's the organiser of the International Heliophysical Year in the UK. Yeah, and that was quite fun because we learned all about what's going to happen solar physics-wise this year. So you've been to a couple of uh, sessions today. Which one, Which sessions have you been to? Well, I went to the plenary session, which was the first session of the day. That was all about galaxies and actually some very strange galaxies um, with all sorts of bizarre things happening that you don't normally think of. Normally you think of a galaxy as a, a disk or, a, or an elliptical galaxy, and you think of the disk as nicely rotating around. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these galaxies had Things rotating around one way and some things going the other way around. When you say things, what do you mean things? Like things stars, like gas or yeah. dust or, or stars. So in, in one particular instance, there was the gas seemed to be rotating one way around and the stars seemed to be rotating at 90 degrees to the gas as you see them on the sky, which is very bizarre and I, I'm not entirely sure about that, but that's apparently what the data shows. Anything else? Yep, I went to a session on extremely large telescopes. Ah, oh, that sounds um, that They sounds used fun. to be called owls, overwhelmingly large telescopes. But now they're extremely um, large. They're just extremely large now, not overwhelmingly large. Oh, I see. There was a fantastic quote from the first speaker who said, they used to be enormous, now they're just half as enormous. <laughs> because basically the original idea was a 100-metre-sized diameter telescope. Right, that was the original overwhelmingly large large telescope, telescope, which would be huge. It seems to have scaled down a little bit as people realise that it's going to cost an awful lot of money to build something that big, and it's very, very difficult. So now they're just extremely large. So now they're extremely large, which the specifications for the European design are between 30 and 60 metres, but nominally 42 metres. 
We should point out that the largest telescope currently in operation, an uh, optical telescope, is what, 11 meters? The salt telescope? So 42 meters is a factor of four bigger, so it's going to be... Which means 16 times more area to collect light with. 16 times more mirror to clean. Yep. <laughs> Although I think these were going to be made up of many, many small mirror segments, a bit like salt is, in fact. So tomorrow I'm going to um, talk to Isabella Hook, who was giving a talk at that session, and get her to tell us all about extremely large telescopes. I look forward to that. So what were you up to today? Well, I Nick? went to the session on extrasolar planets, as is my interest. And that was fun because it was uh, clear that in the next few years there's going to be a lot of interesting results coming in from the missions such as CORO, which is a... That's a French satellite. It's a French satellite, yes, currently in orbit. It's currently uh, just completing its um, testing phase, I believe. It's about to, take start, uh, about to start taking data, and it, its mission is twofold. Uh, first part of the mission is to look for extrasolar planets through the transit method, whereby the planet itself passes between us, or the, the telescope in Earth orbit, and the host star. So if you stare at the star for long enough, you see, uh, you see the light dip. So it's a bit like the transit of Venus in 2004 or, or yeah, Mercury. Yeah, sure. If you measured the light of, from the sun during that uh, uh, transit event, you'll see the light amount dip ever so slightly. And uh, this is what they're trying to do for millions of stars in our local neighborhood. And uh, they're about to start pumping out data soon. And they expect to find, well, they expect to find about 50 interesting events. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to find planets, but 50 events which possibly could be due to extrasolar planets. Okay, so that's just a short roundup of, of what's happened today. Um, it's been fun. Fun, yes. We have been recording some interviews. As we said before, we'll put those on as we go through this week, and we'll try to have an almost daily roundup of, of what's happened. That will depend on how busy we are. Yes. So ch- stay tuned for our next update, and perhaps one or two interviews, or as they become available, uh, stay tuned to the Jogcast website. So we'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. The Jodcast. Reaching the places other astronomy podcasts just can't reach. From the National Astronomy Meeting, Day 2. Hello and welcome to the end of Day 2 at the National Astronomy Meeting. Like yesterday, we've had another very long day and I've just got back from the conference dinner and Kaylee which, by the way, was really great fun. And we probably had around 100 astronomers, including people like Chris Lintott and Lucy Green, all dancing around and having a great time. But it's not just all been about food, dancing and socialising. We've also had plenty of science sessions, in fact, lots of them going on in parallel, which means people have to make difficult choices about which ones they want to go to. We've also seen the first batch of press releases related to announcements that are taking place this week. And earlier, Nick caught up with Dr Chris Waring, to find out more about a press release titled Dying Sun-like Stars Leave Whirlpools in Their Wake. Um, well, what we've been doing over the last few years uh, at Jodrell Bank, using the supercomputer there, Cobra, is running a number of 
three-dimensional computer simulations um, and modelling what's going to happen when stars like our sun reach the end of their life. It's, I mean, our sun is about five billion years old, so we've got another five billion years to go before this kind of thing happens. But what we've been thinking about is what happens if you move a star like our sun through its local kind of medium, the local surrounding material. It's called the interstellar medium. Right. So we've been giving stars uh, a velocity, a motion typical of, of other stars of this kind in the galaxy, um, and that's a, a kind of incredulous sounding 25,000 metres per second, um, all the way up to 200 kilometres per second. And we've been modelling these, and we find that as the star moves through its later stages of evolution, was this, when our sun gets towards the end of its life, it's going to run out of burning hydrogen uh, and start to burn helium, and its material is going to drift off into space. And as much of half of the material on the sun is going to drift off into space. So as it does, if the star's moving through the interstellar medium, then what happens is you get a bow shock ahead of the star, just like you get a bow shock ahead of a boat on the ocean, on ships, etc. So that bow shock uh, forms a certain distance ahead of the star. What we see in the bow shock is instabilities, the same instabilities that you can see in oceans, the same instabilities that actually are thought to cause things like the great red storm on Jupiter. Mm -hmm. And these instabilities form at the head of the bow shock, flow backwards down into the turbulent wake, into the area behind it, and form spiraling whirlpools. Uh, these whirlpools are 0.3 to 30 light years across. And they seem to form stable structures that flow down the tail and back into the interstellar space. So a star that's moving at, say, 150 kilometers per second will travel a couple of hundred parsecs in its lifetime and leave a wake behind it with these vortices in the wake. So the stuff of the, the, stuff the star is made of is being yeah, peeled off basically. It. This is returning stellar material, returning uh, stuff that only forms in stars, the life material, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, that we're all made of, returning it to the interstellar medium and mixing it as well. Uh, and it also provides the interstellar medium with a source of angular momentum, uh, which is essential for star formation in, in clouds uh, and the next generation of stars. Is this the only way that we can get these elements from these stars back into the interstellar medium, or are there other channels? There are other channels that return these elements back into space, um, such as supernovae uh, and Wolf Rayet stars that, that also produce winds like um, the winds that we get off stars like our dying sun. Um, stars that would be like our dying sun. Uh, but our way of returning them perhaps isn't, well, it isn't as strong as these others, but it still returns a, a significant fraction of material and power back into the ISM and angular momentum back into the ISM. How much stellar matter gets peeled off the star in this way? AGB stars, uh, which is the late evolution stage of our sun, uh, lose uh, half of their mass back into the ISM, and that's approximately between half a stellar mass and up to a couple of stellar masses. Anything from about a stellar mass up to about a six stellar mass initial mass star will end up as an AGB star, which will then uh, become a planetary nebula afterwards as well. And during the AGB stage, they will lose up to half of the mass. In relative terms, that's a huge amount. That's 50% of the star gets blown off, basically, due to this interaction between the star's motion yes. and the ISM. Yes, it is a huge amount. And they leave it over such a great distance if they're moving quickly as well. Mm. The average speed of these kind of stars through the galaxy is perhaps only 50 to 75 kilometers per second at most. But there are cases of high-speed stars. Um, Sharpless 2-188 is a planetary nebula that I've worked on uh, that is a case that's moving at 125 kilometers per second. Hmm. So these uh, results came from your theoretical models. You plug the numbers into your computer and you 
figured out this is what should happen when you have a star of this size, this volume, going through the material of this density, etc. Yes. What else have you found? Um, well, we did the simulations for a range of mass loss rates on the asymptotic giant branch and a range of local densities and a range of velocities. And we found that uh, the common thing that happens is that you do get this bearish shock ahead of the star. That is crucial to understanding how the planetary nebula forms in the following stage of post-AGB evolution. So the planetary nebula initially forms within the cocoon of material that's cocooned behind the bow shock. Then as it, it kind of expands and acts as it would as if there was nothing else there inhibiting it, but eventually it'll expand far enough to interact with the bow shock itself. And at that point, we can identify these planetary nebulae that show signs of PN-ISM interaction. Mm. As that happens, then the, the third stage of the interaction is where the geometric center of the nebula, what you might see if you just looked at the nebula and picked where you would think the center was, that starts to shift back downstream away from the bow shock because ahead of the star, the bow shock's inhibiting the expansion of the nebula. Behind it, it's just expanding freely into the tail of the material. And then eventually the whole thing is just disrupted and you can end up with a lone central star that should have a planetary nebula that, you, if you observed it, wouldn't because the planetary nebula has been swept away. Right. So an interesting question that came up, um, that's a, a future question for research that came up this morning in the presentation, is if we studied all the stars that have a proper motion, how many of them may well have had a planetary nebula that's been swept away? Right. Because the major question in our current area is, well, one of the major questions in planetary nebula work and AGB star work is actually putting a number on the galactic population of these type of stars, as in any kind of um, stellar astronomy. Part of the arguments, part of the problems is, is how many binaries there are and whether binaries have any effect on the structure of the planetary nebula because PN show these wonderful range of state shapes from beautiful round shapes to butterflies to bipolar hourglass-like nebulae. And we don't quite know how we get all these different shapes from mm. what look to be symmetrical progenitors. Mm. Is it a binary system or are we looking at magnetic fields playing a role? These are the unresolved questions that we have. And people are trying to, trying to settle the debate as they do. Uh, and many are settling towards the binary side of things. And if we can shed some more light on the populations of these kind of stars and objects that haven't previously been classed as planetary nebulae, then we can shed a lot more light on populations of AGB stars and planetary nebulae as a whole. Would it be true that if you saw a star with high proper motion, one which is moving apparently very quickly, mm. if you look back along its direction of travel, would you expect to see, perhaps in some cases, the remnants of a planetary nebula, that it's been blown off and it's left behind? Yes, there is a case uh, of a planetary nebula, I think it's Sharpless 2-68, which appears to be a central star that's moved outside its planetary nebulae. Mm. Now, it's a, that's a relatively obvious case because the observ it's very near to the planetary nebulae, it's the only PN uh, it's the only candidate central star in the field, which is why they suspect it's moved outside the planetary nebulae. But if you consider my research and the wake of the star, so a fast-moving star would leave this large wake. And it's quite possible that somewhere in the background of these high-density areas that could just be considered as, as clouds, as uh, Herbig Harrow objects, that these could have been associated with the star that's gone through, that's, that's uh, sped through the area and left its planetary nebula behind. Uh, this kind of thing is, is very important to 
up and upcoming surveys that uh, have the ability to look at uh, faint structure and uh, take deep observations. Tell us a, a little bit more about how you actually did the theoretical modelling. Well, we used uh, a computational scheme uh, that I developed during my PhD. Uh, and the main thing that I did uh, in that time was something called making the scheme parallel, which is instead of running it on one computer, we run it on, let's say, 10 or 20 computers at once so that you can run it 10 or 20 times quicker. Hmm. Um, and, or if you wanted, you could run something that was 10 or 20 times larger in the same time. So that's the point of doing parallel computing. The astrophysical model that we developed basically is what we call the triple wind model. And this has a wind that's due to the asymptotic giant branch evolution, which has a stellar mass loss, loses, shall we say, somewhere between 10 to the minus 6 and 10 to the minus 7 solar masses per year. And then a wind for the post-AGB evolution, which is when the planetary nebula forms, which is perhaps 10 to the minus 8 solar masses per year, but is much faster. It's uh, the, the AGB wind is perhaps only 15 kilometers per second, uh, but the post-AGB wind is perhaps 1,000 kilometers per second. And then there's a third wind due to the motion of the ISM. So we perform the computer simulation in the frame of reference of the central star of the planetary nebula, uh, and we sweep past it the ISM mm. um, and give that the velocity between 0 and 200 kilometers per second that we talked about before. Sounds fantastic. Thank you very okay. much indeed well, for all your help. Thanks, Nick. So that's it for today. Come back tomorrow and we'll hopefully have some more for you. Bye for now. The Jodcast. Because we're worth it. From the National Astronomy Meeting, Day 3. Okay, hello and welcome to Day 3 of NAM, the National Astronomy Meeting in Preston. We've lost Nick, but we've gained some other people. Now, one of the people we've got with us is a familiar on the Jodcast, Megan Argo. Hello. And we've also got someone who we've interviewed in the past on the Jodcast, David Boyce. Hello. He's from the University of Leicester. And we also have Paul Steele, who's an infrared astronomer from the University of Leicester as well. Yes. Hello. Okay, so you've all been here today. You've all been to lots of sessions. A whole two, yes. A whole two. <laughs> so, so what did you go to, Paul? Um, this morning we went to the uh, Young Astronomers Meeting, YAM at NAM, and then this afternoon the uh, Degenerate Astronomy, White Dwarf the Pulsars. Degenerate Astronomy? Yes, yeah, White Dwarfs, Pulsars and Brown Dwarfs. Right, OK, David, tell us what happened at the Young Astronomy Meeting. Well, the Young Astronomy Meeting was a, a fantastic uh, way for young people to, to engage with young people in astronomy. We listened to three very good talks in the morning. In the afternoon it was cosmology, so I didn't really go to that. But uh, in the morning, it was uh, Mark Swinbank uh, from the University of Durham, and he was talking about uh, red-shifted uh, hydrogen Lyman line in, uh, in distant galaxies. And his basic idea was that the only explanation for these red-shifted materials was that there was a shell existing around certain galaxies. And this was very fascinating because I hadn't heard of this previous up to this stage, so that was a very interesting talk to mm. go to. We also had Chris Lintot. Uh, you may know Chris Lintot from BBC's Sky at Night programme, and uh, he was doing a talk based on is it astrochemistry. Astrochemistry. And uh, he, he was uh, looking at dust grains and, and the different molecules that are 
that are apparent in the interstellar medium. And uh, that was a very interesting talk as well, because that, that's quite far removed from what I do. But it was useful because studying a different sort of field, uh, it was mm. useful to get an insight into a, into a field that I, you know, I didn't have a lot of experience in. And finally, we had Lucy Hadfield uh, from the University of Sheffield, who was doing a, a, a talk in Wolf Rayet stars and the sort of situations that we find them in. What are Wolf Rayet stars then? Well, Wolf Rayet stars, they're the heaviest stars that you can get, basically. They're the most supermassive, super bright, super hot. But because they are so big, they're described as the James Dean of the star world. They live <laughs> fast and die young. And the point is that these stars are very rare because they, they normally get to the end of their lives in such a short time scale that, uh, that we don't observe them. And the point was that, that she, she was observing them in other galaxies and, and she was finding you know, many of them using uh, sort of uh, different images of different wavelengths. So that was a very interesting talk as well. Now, the Young Astronomers Meeting is an opportunity for uh, people just starting out in their astronomy careers to talk to other people and get experience in presentation skills and such like. Okay, now earlier on I caught up with Stuart Ayres of the University of Central Lancashire. He's on the organising committee for the National Astronomy Meeting. Can you tell us a little bit about NAM? Well, the National Astronomy Meeting is a big meeting of of astronomers from the United Kingdom, sponsored by the Royal Astronomical Society. Usually around three to 400 of us get together every year to discuss a whole range of astronomy. This year we're also being joined unusually by the UK solar physics people, and for the first time, the solar terrestrial people. So we're actually up to 520 people this year. It's an awful lot of people. I think it makes us the biggest NAM ever, yes. And it must be a, a logistical nightmare for you. Uh, not quite a nightmare, but certainly requires a lot of detailed planning and solving of problems that, that crop up as you go along, um, you know, problems with accommodation, transport and so on. So when did you start planning for NAM? Well, there's a little story behind that. Originally, this, this NAM was intended to be at Amsterdam, and for some reason that fell through. So That's almost, the UK uh, National Astronomy Meeting in Amsterdam? In Amsterdam. And about 12 months ago, um, it fell through, and I had an email from our uh, uh, head of centre, Gordon Bromwich, saying, do we fancy hosting NAM? Well, I've just said we will. So um, <laughs> that was it then. From there, it's all sort of the systems go. We got things set up, uh, running websites and organising science sessions and so on. So Brad Gibson's organised all the science sessions. Uh, well, organised the conveners to organise the science sessions, and I've uh, been uh, organising all the other things. Robert Walsh has been working on the UK solar physics and solar terrestrial stuff. Running up to it, and particularly last week and the week before, all those things that you think, right, if I, just, if I just spend 10 minutes now or an hour now, I can get that sorted out, and it won't be a problem in the week. And so the whole week was a sort of that level of stress of, got to get this sorted out now, because I know... And now there's things I just can't do, and you just have yep. to live with them, and there's other things that are working really well. And I'm just enjoying the buzz of the place, having all these people here. Um, you know, I actually enjoy helping people out. You know, where, where do I find the press room or where do I find this session or how do I get to the, to the, uh, the conference dinner and so on. And just the buzz of having people here and, and enjoying it and, and taking in some of the science sessions. On the Monday, I didn't end up and get into any of the science sessions. But since then, I've managed to get into some of them and really enjoying those, those science sessions. And bizarre experience, despite the fact I was involved in gathering all the abstracts, it was only when we came to put the abstract book together... And I was actually glancing through them. I was thinking, oh, not seen that. That's interesting. No, I'd like to go to that <laughs> one as well. You know? And you suddenly realise how the breadth and the depth of what we're doing here. And there was a, a live webcast, I think, the other day. Yes, that's right. Monday we had a live webcast of our astronomy question time. So that involved uh, Chris Lintot of Sky at Night fame uh, as the chair and uh, Jocelyn Belbanel, of course, is the discoverer of Pulsars, and our very own uh, Don Kurtz, who's an astro-seismology expert, and Lucy Green from MSSL, who, who sort of filled in on the sort of solar physics side. Is there any plan to make that webcast an archive, put it in an archive? I believe it is archived, yes. Uh, I'm supposed to be putting that on our website soon, so I'll try and do that. Right. 
So uh, when you do, we'll put a link to it on our show notes. That's brilliant, brilliant. Um, and so people who missed it mm-hmm. the first time because it, it mm-hmm. was live, and so yes. some people in different parts of the world won't be able to That's watch right. it. That's right. It's been an excellent conference so far. Good. Um, Glad you enjoyed it. Yep. And we'll, we've got a few more days left, so we'll try and um, cover it on the Jodcast as much as we can. Thank you for talking to us. No problem. No, thanks for asking me. That was Stuart Ayres of the University of Central Lancashire. During the middle sessions of uh, Wednesday, I sat in on the, the current facilities, as, as many of you did as well, yeah. and uh, there were some very interesting talks um, about the, the, the telescopes and uh, facilities that are in use at the moment. Now, I know that um, they spoke about, Ian Steele spoke about the Liverpool Robotic Telescope on mm. uh, the Rocco della Muchachos Observatory in La Palma, and uh, he was talking about future developments. Uh, he was. The, I mean, they've got a few instruments on there already, and the telescope's been going for some time now. Um, when, one of the instruments is called Frodo Spec, which obviously takes its name from Lord of the Rings. Um, one of the other instruments is the Ringo instrument, which is a polarimeter, so it looks at the polarisation of the light, um, like when you use a pair of polarised sunglasses. But this looks at the polarisation of the starlight, basically by spinning around very, very quickly. And it makes the, the stars track out a circle on the camera. You can look at the way that the brightness of the star changes as it goes around this circle, and that tells you about the polarisation of, of the star. So he was, he was talking about those instruments and telling us about the current performance of the Liverpool telescope. The downtime due to problems, because it's all co- robotically controlled, so a computer makes decisions what to observe. During the night, everyone goes to sleep. So I think the downtime was down to 9% now. 9% this year so far, yeah, which is, which is an improvement on previous years by quite a long way, yeah. What, what caught your interest, David? I thought one of the most interesting talks at the current facilities session at the NAM was a talk by Rennie Ritten on the future of the WHT, the William Herschel Telescope in La Palma. Now, the background behind this is that Britain has paid into the WHT and the Isaac Newton group of telescopes for a long time, and our astronomers have been given a section of the time and have been able to observe with these. The other people who are involved in that are the Netherlands and Spain, I think, aren't they? That is. We have a a slightly more than one-third share at the moment. However, due to the rearrangement of the research councils that that fund us as uh, PhD students and fund, uh, fund astronomy, there has been a, a reprioritization of where money should go, and therefore they feel that we should be putting less money into this, these telescopes, the repercussions of which are that we are not going to be able to have as much time. Our 50% share in the time of this telescope is going to down to 25%. Now, this is a, a travesty for UK astronomy because the WHT is one of the major installations that, that we go out to, mm. especially in the optical wavelengths. And the situation is more dire than that because the, w- the WHT and the Isaac Newton Group of Telescopes, it's a group of telescopes. And though the WHT is very oversubscribed in observation, the Isaac Newton Telescope, a slightly smaller one, is the sort of workhorse of UK astronomy. Now, they're threatening that if we can't fund it, that they may have to shut this telescope down and no one would be able to use it because they can't afford it. And now, that's, that's likely to be in 2009 if it happens. If it happens, it could be by 2009. It sounds as though you should set up a campaign to save the WHT. Which is starting now. You seem to be now. getting quite passionate about it. Which is starting <laughs> now. The WHT will survive, survive because it is still a world-class facility. But the Isaac Newton telescope, it could get chopped off. Was Isaac Newton based at Greenwich at one point? Uh, the Isaac Newton telescope, the telescope itself was uh, actually in Hurst-Monceau. Oh, of course. And then they took it to bits. 
and then sent it to La Palma and reconstructed it there. And so it's been working there ever since. So it's a very old telescope, but still able to produce fantastic results. So under no consequences should we allow this telescope to be decommissioned. Okay, so Megan, you actually gave part of a talk at the current facilities session, didn't you? Yes, I gave part of the talk on the upgrade to the Merlin telescope, which will be called eMerlin. Um, so Merlin is the network of telescopes that we operate at Jodrell. So we've got the Lovell telescope, we've got several other telescopes around the country as well, and we link them all together to pretend that we have a bigger telescope. So it's called Aperture Synthesis. Right, so it gives you a telescope how big? Merlin is 217 kilometres in diameter. So a radio telescope 217 kilometres across? Effectively, yes. It means that basically the bigger your telescope, the better your resolution, the more detail you can see. And because radio wavelengths are so long, to get the same resolution, to see the same amount of detail with a radio telescope as you see with something like the Hubble Space Telescope, you'd need to build a radio telescope that was 200 kilometres in diameter. So Merlin gets the same resolution at radio wavelengths as the Hubble Space Telescope, 2.4 metres in diameter, does in optical. Okay, so what... What's the difference between Merlin and E-Merlin? What's the E for? The E is, I think, short for enhanced. It's basically a, a big upgrade where we're replacing the current links, which are microwave links between the telescopes, which transmit the data collected by each telescope back to Jodrell Bank to be put together in a computer called a correlator. And we're replacing those with um, fibre-optic links, basically using the internet to transfer the data which will mean we've got a much bigger bandwidth. We can send more data back, and the more data you can send back, the more sensitive your images are going to be. So the further away we can see in the universe, the fainter objects we can pick out. OK, now, earlier, David, you caught up with Monica Grady of the Open University in one of the poster sessions. Let's find out what she had to say. OK, this is David Boyce reporting for the Jodcast. Uh, I'm now talking to Monica Grady at NAM 2007. So exactly why are you here? What are you presenting anything? Hi, David. No, I'm not presenting anything here at NAM. I've just come to listen and learn and find out what's hot in the, the different fields. You've just told me that in astrobiology there's an interest in summer school that's been arranged. Uh, could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's right. Each year, Pea Park as was, but the Science and Technologies Facility Council as it is now, they organise summer schools for new PhD students for two reasons. One, so that the new students can get to know each other from all over Britain, so that they can come together to form their new community. And two, so that they can learn what's state-of-the-art in uh, the broader field. And this year, for the first time, there's going to be a summer school in astrobiology. And this is going to, we hope, draw a between 20 and 30 new PhD students who are studying physics, astronomy, biology, chemistry, planetary sciences, bring them all together so they can find out about different aspects of astrobiology because it's a really broad field. I know that you were, you were heavily involved with ALH 84001, the meteorite from Mars. I wonder if you can tell me that at the time it was suggested that a small shape in the rock was potentially a fossil of a segmented worm. I wonder if you can tell me what's the, the latest on, on that. Right, well, this uh, work was, gosh, uh, 11 years ago now, so it was in 1996, amazingly enough, uh, and some scientists from NASA found this little um, structure. And since then, there's been a lot of work done on the structure, on the meteorite, rather, 
the general feeling is that it probably wasn't a Martian fossil. If it was any sort of fossil, it was a, a terrestrial contaminant. But it's more likely that it, it wasn't a fossil at all, that it was just actually a, a way the rock had broken. And, and what it illustrated was that you can't just rely on images alone. You've got to have chemical, isotopic data to help reinforce because shape is is subject to all sorts of different interpretations. What it did do though was it really pushed forward Martian exploration and the idea of looking for extremophiles, so microorganisms that live in extreme habitats, looking for those on Mars. So it was a great thing for science, even though it didn't actually turn out to be the first indication of Martian life. They often refer to meteorites as being the the poor man's spacecraft, that uh, a lot of things can be studied when the rocks come to us rather than, uh, than going elsewhere to study. Um, I wonder, do you think that spacecraft are now the future of astrobiology or, or do you still think that meteorites are potentially a good source of information? Well, given that I make my living studying meteorites, I don't think I'm going to say that uh, that can all be replaced by, by spacecraft. <laughs> Definitely not. No, seriously, we can learn so much from meteorites. They fall on the Earth all the time, and they carry within them records of all epochs of solar system history. So you get meteorites that have never been heated, which are the unaltered material that the solar system is made from. And that's the only physical stuff that we can analyse. But buried within those are grains that have come from beyond the solar system. So there's a whole host of grains that were formed before the solar system was formed, grains that have come from red giant stars, from supernovae, and so from other stellar bodies. And they tell us the history of the fragment of molecular cloud that collapsed to form our own solar system. And again, this is the only physical material that we can look at Um, There is organic stuff there, which is uh, remnants of the uh, molecules from the interstellar medium that undergo iron molecule reactions, so polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, stuff like that. The building blocks of life, they're all in there. So there's an enormous amount of information we get from meteorites, not just about our solar system, but about our galaxy as well. So it'll be a long, long time before studying meteorites is, is replaced by spacecraft. So I regard myself as a laboratory-based astronomer. I do my astronomy down the microscope rather than using a telescope. What do you think about the possibility of life on Europa? Oh, now, Europa is a really fascinating body. Um, and the, the problem with Europa is it's, it's so far away and it's going to be so expensive to get there, even with... Um, even with the European Space Agency's new call for missions, where one of the favourite missions is one to go to Europa. One of the fascinating things about Europa is the parallels that there are between Europa and the subglacial lakes in Antarctica. So Antarctica is covered uh, by ice, and below that ice there are many, many lakes which are, contain microorganisms which have been isolated there for hundreds of thousands of years and it's possible that a similar sort of organisms might survive below the the, uh, ice on Europa. It's going to be a real challenge to determine how we can get through many kilometres of ice though on Europa. Uh, What's uh, the cutting edge at the moment? What are you working on right now? Right, 
cutting edge research. Now, my problem is that I've got my fingers in so many pies. <laughs> I'm doing so many different things. Yeah, I get to committee meetings, <laughs> write grant proposals, get my grant proposals uh, rejected, etc., etc. But I've got a student at the moment who's working on ultraviolet spectroscopy. And we've got a, a really neat machine, a really neat telescope, which can measure the spectra of solids and liquids from about 190 nanometers up to about 800 nanometers so it's it's not the VUV but it's it's UV up to um, uh, and through the visible and we're using that to look at um, a whole range of minerals and ices and minerals in ices so that we can look at the ultraviolet spectra of asteroids, Kuiper belt objects, Europa, various other things to find out what sort of materials are in those objects. There has been a, quite a lot of UV spectroscopy done by telescope, you know, IUE, FUSE, things like that, but there are very few lab databases uh, and so we're actually doing a lab database so we can match our work with asteroids and, and see what space weathering does to asteroids, uh, look at debris disks around stars, all sorts of things, because organics have very distinct, distinctive um, UV uh, signatures. So that's the work I'm doing at the moment. In the field of astrobiology, what are the big questions that you predict will be solved in the next 10 years? how crikey in the next 10 years well I'm, I really hope in the next 10 years we'll know a lot about more about Mars and about what's on the surface of Mars and what's just below the surface uh, I think Mars is going to be where it's at for the next few years but after that Europa I think is going to have to be our, our focus mm-hmm. uh, Monica Grady thank you very much okay Paul you're our resident degenerate expert tell us what, what happened at the degenerate astronomy session well, we had uh, we had seven talks today, so it would take some time to go through all of them. But the uh, the most interesting ones I found, anyway, was uh, the first one we had by Ben Burningham from Hertfordshire. He talked about brown dwarfs in the uh, UKIDS Large Area Survey. So, what is UKIDS? Uh, UKIDS is the uh, UK Infrared Deep Sky Survey. So what Ben Burningham was looking for was essentially the, the coolest brown dwarfs. So ever. brown dwarfs are like failed stars? Essentially just failed stars. And getting cooler, you're also getting towards, say, Jupiter-type planets or Saturn and getting towards that kind of low-mass area. Essentially what he's doing is he's looking at the spectra of these late-type brown dwarfs. The, the sequence goes currently from late M is the classification of the first brown dwarf through L's through the T's and currently the latest one they have is T8.5 maybe T7.5 And where do these mythical Y dwarfs come into all this? The Y dwarfs will come into it where they basically haven't decided yet (laughs) essentially the the spectra will change in some incredibly odd way (laughs) where they will decide that's a why not and then go from Y0, Y1, Y2, as this really odd change gets bigger. So they haven't found any Y dwarfs yet? No. But they've already classified them? But they have already classified them. It's a letter someone came up with in a paper some time ago that's just been adopted. Okay. Go on then, David, you've got something to say. In the uh, plenary session this morning, they were talking about the archaeology of Andromeda. Now, this isn't... So what do they mean by archaeology? 
this is the sort of the history of uh, that the, the the galaxy has gone through. It's sort of like a what has happened in the past to this galaxy. Now we we see a snapshot of time, and by looking at how the star streams are and the the various things attached to Andromeda, we can see what's happened recently. Now what they've detected is a very large star stream, like another dwarf galaxy of some sort has cruised through torn out a region of stars and those stars are left behind and these are what's been detected. Now I find it very amazing actually that at the end of this star stream is M33 but I've, yeah, it seems I've, to be pointing in that direction doesn't it on the pictures that they were showing. Very much and the width of the star stream seems to indicate that a very large object has passed through not a dwarf galaxy however I've been reliably told that M33 is not the uh, object that passed through Andromeda that it's an object that we have not detected yet. So, at this point in time... It's I think not passed through Andromeda. If it passed through Andromeda, Andromeda would be a major starburst, and it's not. So, therefore, <laughs> it's not. Well, it's not passed through Andromeda, but it could have passed close by. It's passed close it by, could have and passed the tidal interaction will have, will have distorted it, but it's not. Exactly, that's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> I think Sorry, I'm being pedantic. Say that it wasn't quite angled towards M33. It wasn't quite was exactly it? on the angle that it needed to be. Of course, one of the major events that, that I'm personally looking forward to with Andromeda is the fact that Andromeda is moving towards the Milky Way. Oh, of course, it's, we have a, a collision with it in three billion years' time, I think. Exactly. I will be there. With my <laughs> <laughs> He's frozen. Yes. I would like to be thawed for that event. <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday, I managed to present my own results looking at white dwarfs and UV spectra. And through these results, I managed to find something very interesting about the local environment around our sun. The, the local bubble that people have been talking about for years is uh, it's a supernova remnant. A supernova went off quite close to the sun sometime in the past, and it cleared out all of the gas in the local area. And was that before or after the sun formed? It was probably after, because the sun's been around for at least, was it, five billion years. And, uh, and so you're saying at some point the solar system had all this material pushed through it? Well, the magnetic influence of the sun, the magnetosphere, keeps most of the interstellar medium in the interstellar regions. Mm. Um, we live in a protected zone that is, is put up to us by the sun, and um, the Voyager spacecraft are just leaving this zone as we speak. Actually, that's quite appropriate that you should mention this about the heliosphere, because I talked to Dr Lucy Green, who's one of the organisers for the International Heliophysical Year in the UK, and this is what she had to say. International Heliophysical Year is is many things, actually. Um, the first thing, which is, is rather nice, is celebrating 50 years of space science. Um, 50 years ago, in 1957, we had an event called International Geophysical Year, and it was a time when scientists around the world came together to answer fundamental science questions about the Earth and the Earth's oceans and the Earth's atmospheres. Uh, sorry, atmosphere. Um, and it involved... Apparently, around 60,000 scientists. 60,000, that's an awful lot of scientists. Yeah, it was a huge, huge project. I mean, the legacy lives on today in that it was um, that international collaborations started to grow. Um, So to answer these big science questions, you needed lots of scientists focused on them. And so you needed lots of people working together. And the other thing that you needed um, were instruments flying in space. Mm. So in 1957, we saw the launch of the first artificial satellites. and the Sputnik. Sputnik. Yeah, Yeah, Sputnik 1. So very, very famous um, event. And uh, in International Heliophysical Year, we're studying or celebrating, sorry, 50 years since that really momentous event. 
Now, the other aspect of heliophysical year is the science side of it and what we're actually doing mm. in this time. Um, and we're looking beyond the Earth now. And actually, the, the, the new frontier for International Heliophysical Year is actually at the edge of the solar system. So we're interested in the centre of the solar system, the sun, going all the way out, following right to the edge of the sun's sphere of influence, um, which is called, well, the heliosphere is the name for the region of, of, of the solar system that, that the sun um, influences basically it has all the planets in it and it goes out and then we have the edge of our heliosphere and the other side of that is the interstellar space so international heliophysical year is about studying processes that happen within the sun's magnetic realm of influence okay so how big is this heliosphere it's rather large so we think to the from the sun out to the edge of the heliosphere is about 12 billion kilometers that's a very long way. Huge distances. But then, incredibly, when you think about the spacecraft that were launched in the 1970s, Voyager 1 is thought to be almost out at that distance and is, in fact, reaching the edge of our own solar system, which is quite mind-boggling. So mm. these satellites that were launched, these spacecraft that were launched, have been like ghost ships over the last few years. But every now and then we get a signal back from, from them telling us what the conditions are like um, and teaching us about the edge of our own solar system. So scientifically, what type of experiments will be happening this year? Well, there's lots of things happening. Um, but one thing to say is that International Heliophysical Year isn't a pot of money to fund new missions. Mm. It's about focusing people's minds and making the most of what we have already, actually. And in the UK, one area of focus is looking at how the sun affects the Earth and looking at the fact or having the view that the sun and the Earth are connected and that the, the Earth is really sitting in the outer part of the sun's atmosphere. So we're in this very complex and dynamic environment. And we have about 12 space missions, actually, which are looking at this sun-Earth connection. So it shows the importance of the science, really. So we've got 12 missions looking at the sun? Uh, yes, looking at the sun or looking at how the sun affects the Earth. So they range from missions that are actually a million uh, miles away um, from or upstream of the Earth towards the Sun. And there's a spacecraft there called SOHO. There's other spacecraft there as well. And they look at the Sun and they sense emissions coming off of the Sun on their way to the Earth. And then we have spacecraft orbiting around the Earth, um, again looking at the Sun or sensing how the Earth's magnetic field changes in response to emissions from the Sun. So one thing to mention is that the Sun produces the biggest explosions and eruptions in the solar system and they mm. can have a big impact on the Earth and we want to know how that happens. So what type of impacts can they have on the Earth then? Well, there's a range of effects that we feel... Um, one which is probably quite familiar to people, even though you, you may not have seen it directly, you'll have seen it in books, and that's the northern and the southern lights. That's oh, a, the aurora. Yeah, so that's a symptom of the Sun-Earth connection. But then there are, there are other things that have been reported over the recent years. So, for example, um, problems with spacecraft, damage that's been done to the electronics on board. They can have phantom commands induced in them. <laughs> and we've even had satellites drop out of the sky because of successive... Um, effects from the sun. I've actually dropped out of the sky. Yeah, so you can get satellites losing altitude and starting to deorbit um, because these, these emissions from the sun can heat up 
the Earth's atmosphere and cause it to expand. So the satellites can find themselves in a denser region of the atmosphere. And in that case, they experience more drag and they start to fall towards the Earth. Well, it has a serious impact then. It does. And the more we use technology, the more actually we're um, finding ways in which the sun affects us. Hmm. So we have this very nice concept now of looking at changes in our near-Earth space environment and predicting something called space weather. So in the same way that you'd look at changes in the atmosphere, which are changes in our weather, um, we, we want to look further into space. So will we have space weather forecasts on the end of the TV news? I think that would be an interesting thing to have. Um, So you could be looking at the sun, looking at the sun's emission, having a little forecast. Then maybe there's some prediction about, well, you won't be able to watch um, such and such satellite TV channel because this one's going to be turned off because of this event coming from the sun. It's it's an interesting thought. Thinking of it being an international heliophysical year, how do you get a year? Yeah, so scientists have to get up and make noises to make it happen, basically. And the UK were um, leaders in in making this happen. So people got together and they wanted to do something to celebrate 50 years of space science and renew the focus on um, physics of the solar system, especially now. I mean, now is a very, very good time to be doing it because, as as I mentioned, we have all these great missions that are um, looking at our solar system. I mean, great for looking at the sun and the Earth, but we have missions looking at other planets too and lots of other things happening in the solar system. Well, that all sounds fantastic. Um, We wish you the best of luck with the International Heliophysical Year and thank you for talking to us. Thank you. That was Dr Lucy Green there of the Millard Space Science Laboratories. So that's the end of day three then. Goodbye. 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 <laughs> the Jodcast. Insert witty comment here. From the National Astronomy Meeting, Day 4. Hello and welcome to day four of the National Astronomy Meeting from Preston in the UK. Um, with us today we have David Boyce. Hello. Neil Phillips. Hi. We have Megan Argo. Hello. And of course me. We've got quite a few things lined up for you today. We've been off interviewing everyone that we could possibly find. We have um, Mike Lockwood talking about the sun. We have Ruth Bamford talking about deflector shields. Um, we have Matt Griffin talking about the Herschel Telescope. Martin Barstow talking about the Hubble Space Telescope. Peter Wheatley talking about exoplanets, and Chris Lintot talking about astrochemistry and the sky at night. So, what have people been to? Well, today, one of the, the major themes of the day was it was a sort of facilities day. Everyone was talking about their telescope or, or the telescope that they were involved in or, or their facility. And um, quite, a lot of, quite a lot of the day was dedicated to these sorts of things. So that's why most of the, the talks today are people associated with certain projects. Is it possible that the reason that you thought everybody was talking about facilities is because you went to the current the future facilities session and not any of the others? <laughs> that, that, that could have been it, yeah. <laughs> so we've seen some very interesting talks today. Uh, we, we had in the morning, in the plenary sessions, we had uh, Emma Bunce talking about the, the magnetic environment around Saturn, and we also had Mike Lockwood, who was talking about the radiation of the interplanetary medium. Basically, yeah. in other words, that means... Uh, is it safe for humans to travel in space without getting fried? I think that was a really interesting talk, wasn't it? 
It was it very was. entertaining, yes. Well, I think everyone secretly wants to be astronauts. And <laughs> Absolutely. Everyone was just weighing up whether or not it was <laughs> worth it. Um, you talked to Mike Lockwood earlier, didn't you? I did, and he had quite a lot to say. Uh, would you like to give us a, a run-over of what you've been talking about today? Okay, well, the, the basic idea is that uh, there's a lot of interest in, in manned uh, flight, uh, flights of discovery outside Earth's magnetic field. This magnetic field, however, does give us some shielding some, from some fairly nasty radiations that are out there in space. And the sun has a key role in, in those radiations. It provides a shield that shields us from galactic particles, galactic cosmic ray particles, which are, um, you don't want to be exposed to. But at the same time, the very features of, of what the sun emits, uh, transient events, structures that come out from the sun past all the planets, those features not only shield us from cosmic rays, but they unfortunately generate uh, their own type of, of, of energetic particle. We, we call them um, solar energetic particles, or SEPs. And these are, are also very damaging to, to, to people in space. So uh, there's a lot that we need to know and understand and be able to predict about the medium if we are going to safely uh, uh, explore our, our solar system. Uh, you mentioned that events from the sun could have affected the Apollo astronauts in, previously. Do you know what the situation is going to be at the timescales when we're thinking of going back to the moon? Is it going to be solar maximum and, and what would that mean for the astronauts? Okay, well, there are choices to be made here. The, the, the galactic uh, particles are continuous. They're modulated every 11 years for the solar cycle, and we now know modulated on an 80- to a 90-year cycle as well. As they go down, the total flux of these other particles from, from SEP particles that the sun, the structures that come out of the sun that they produce, they go up. And we have reason to suspect that they're going to become less of a problem. The real problem is the, is the really large events. The really large events are, are virtually unpredictable. They, they come along at all phases of, of otherwise solar activity. So although you can behave the, uh, predict the average behaviour, the one-off events are going to need real-time monitoring, and when they happen, they, you're going to have to act very, very quickly. When Seconds. would you go? Yeah. If, you, if you were going to go into space, when would you go? Oh, well, I'd probably pass out in the rocket going up the side, because I'm not good with heights. But, um, <laughs> to answer your question, um, I th the, the general idea is that you can't spend your life in a shield all the time. And because the cosmic ray radiation is continuous, you're going to, a better thing to do is to, take, is to go at solar maximum where you get the maximum shielding effect of the sun from, cos uh, from cosmic radiation, but take evasive action. And I guess you're asking me to put my money where my mouth is. I'm, we're, we're part, my science is in the business of making good predictions of when these events are. And quite literally, one's life would depend on those predictions in, in space. There are, as well as, as saying, OK, this is a hostile medium and we need the predictions to make sure we're not out and exposed uh, at bad times, there are um, means that we're thinking of, the, of, of providing shielding. Uh, this could be a combination of traditional radiation shielding the danger with that is the really damaging particles are very heavy and very energetic. So we talk about iron, ions and things like that. Um, they uh, will, when they hit a shield, they will produce a whole load of secondary particles that themselves are fairly nasty. So you might lead a layered approach. 
And but the trouble with traditional shielding revolves around mass, and uh, it's going to be very very expensive to take a lot of mass into into space. So smarter means of doing it, and one ex- example is is there's this idea that's been talked about at this meeting um, called mini magnetospheres. Now that's actually not a very good title. We wouldn't deflect particles away from by, with the magnetic field because the gyro radius problems. The gyro radius of these harmful harmful ions is huge, but you could actually repel them with an electric field. So if you had something whereby the particle produced an electric field as it tried to penetrate it and was then repelled, then you might be able to provide at least some form of shielding. And we know we can do this for for the relatively low energy particles. Can we do it for, for, for really the really nasty high-energy particles? Um, and I think the way we'll actually cope in the end will be a combination of, of clever strategy, right timing, traditional lead-type shielding, and then some smart plasma shielding as well. So, but we're going to have to do something, otherwise um, sooner or later we will lose a whole craft full of people, basically. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That was Mike Lockwood from the Rutherton, Appleton Laboratory and Southampton University. Mike Lockwood was talking about the sun and its effects on people. Now, one of the things he also mentioned was about the shielding that you could use on a spacecraft. He was saying you need multi-layered shields and you have to perhaps take lots of water as a final defence against all these high-energy particles from the sun. Now, I talked to Ruth Bamford, who has made the international press because she has a fantastic headline for her research, which was titled Shields for the Starship Enterprise, a reality. That was with a question mark at the end. And it's basically making a magnetic bubble to protect your spaceship. So let's find out what she had to say. OK, I've caught up with Ruth Bamford of the Rutherford Appleton Laboratories. Correct, yes. You've been in the, on the BBC News website. You've been in lots of newspapers the last few days. Your story was something about Star Trek-style deflectors. What's all this about? Well, what we're planning on doing at the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory is uh, doing an experimental investigation of the feasibility of producing a little magnetosphere around spacecraft. So um, a magnetosphere is like a magnetic bubble? Yeah, it's like a magnetic bubble. It's, it's the, uh, how the Earth's magnetic field, when it goes out into space, um, and it forms a, a bubble, as you quite rightly say, around the Earth and protects... Uh, or the Earth from a lot of the solar radiation impacting in, in our direction. How would you go about building a, a small one on a spacecraft? Well, we're hoping to borrow a lot of the skills and knowledge from the people in magnetic confinement fusion. Uh, there's 50 years of experience there to draw upon in order to um, create little magnetic bubbles. So they do this in the laboratory in order to keep a plasma in, inside a vacuum vessel, and that plasma they're trying to heat up to temperatures where they and get nuclei to fuse. and this That's millions of degrees. Millions of degrees. It's actually a lot hotter, uh, more energetic plasma than uh, we're trying to hold out, and they're trying to hold it in. And if you have ever seen any pictures of the jet or Mars tokamaks that are in Oxfordshire, you, you can see there's this very hot, hot plasma. It's kept away from uh, a vacuum vessel wall with only a few centimetres between a, a stainless steel at room temperature and this extremely hot and dynamic plasma. That's very impressive. It is very impressive. And we're just hoping to just essentially do the opposite. They're trying to keep it in, we want to keep it out. And that's what makes us very confident that we can actually do this. We don't even need a magnetic field as strong as they, they have. We need a, a relatively small field of only 50 so, nanometers or so. 
Right, so in context, what's 50 nanoteslas in terms of everyday experience? Well, you, you, if you think about the Earth's magnetic field at, uh, at sea level, uh, the, the field that makes your compass needle twitch towards the north, the field out in space is uh, a lot, lot, lot smaller uh, than that. It's uh, about six orders of magnitude uh, less. So, a million times less. Yeah, so, so it's a very weak field in actual fact. And what, the, what we are actually using is not just the magnetic effect of the magnetic field, it's the fact that there's charged particles who like to stay with that magnetic field and orbit around it, the plasma, yeah. and uh, the, the matter coming from the sun in these famous coronal mass ejections of solar proton events, uh, that is a plasma, it's an energetic plasma, uh, which is the radiation that is da- damaging to human health and to electronics. So we're using a plasma on plasma interaction. We're holding back a plasma with an- another plasma that we have controls on. And uh, that's an extremely efficient way of doing it. And it's not... We're not it, it, where it's a force field is. It's a force field we all know about. Hmm. It's not a new uh, branch of science being discovered. Yep. It's electrostatic forces between positive and negative charges, and a plasma acts as a collective beast, where those charges uh, keep all the particles in communication with each other. Right. And they essentially form a, a continuous force field of or a mesh. Right, by so keeping hold themselves together. So you'd have that sat on the sun side of the spacecraft then, presumably? Yes, in some configuration, uh, some design, maybe in a cluster of satellites or maybe a single uh, surrounding a spacecraft that holds the uh, astronauts or maybe we have a donut-shaped spacecraft or something like that. Those, those are essentially details to be worked out yeah. uh, when, with all the other aspects of building a spacecraft to go to the moon at Mars and stay there I have to be sorted out a lot later first yeah. of all we've got to find out if we can get it to work and get it to, to be optimum and what kind of engineering we need to do and so that's the, the uh, source of the research project that we're doing at Rutherford Right, so what are you actually doing in the lab? Well we've been doing some computer models for a couple of years uh, but it's computationally complex to study this interface of these two plasmas right. because you can't use the simple assumptions that this plasma collective plasma is a fluid you've got to go down to looking at the interactions or responses of the individual particles so you've got to start talking about particle in the box so a lot of millions and millions of so particles it's a computationally incredibly complex to how not only the kinetics of the particles as with mass and charge but how all these charges at a distance interact with each other and you've got to forget the very important magnetic field Mm. which is essentially guiding where they go, how they behave, whether they, they go across the field lines or not. But this presumably the they field. influence the magnetic field as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a two-way process, very much so. So it's a, it's a complex beast, all right, yeah. but it, it's one which has been worked on uh, to a tremendous extent mm. all around the world, uh, not least in laser plasmas, astronomical plasmas, and most poignantly for our purposes, magnetic fine plasmas, right. where they've been trying to get the engineering right to actually... Uh, guide these magnetic fields in the right configuration to create a, a force field, as it were. So what sort of timescale do you expect this might, you might have something working in the lab? We will, we will have an experiment. We're actually going to borrow an experiment from the University of Manchester, 
the plasma physics group, which is actually a linear plasma device which was developed for studying certain aspects of how the plasma in a, in a tokamak uh, hits material. Mm. But that flowing plasma is a, it's a linear device. That's a solar wind yeah. in, a, in, a, in a bottle. And so we're going to put some items in its way to uh, look at trying to hold off that flow and do some proof of principle experiments. And we should be able to do that in the next six months. And then we're going to move that equipment, we're going to borrow it and take it down to the Rutherford. We'll find our feet in the experimental world of uh, mini magnetospheres. And after that, we hope to be building a large-scale version uh, in the very large tank that there is uh, for satellite testing at Rutherford. Mm. Uh, and after that, we would hope to be investigating technologies like superconductors and the like. So it's, it's a long-term programme, but it's uh, all doable. Well, it sounds fantastic, and it brings all the Star Trek-style technologies a bit closer to, to now. Well, as many aspects of Star Trek, of course, were not just plot devices designed by the writers of Star Trek. They got a lot of advice for scientists and uh, consultants from NASA. So they were well aware of what's doable. And we all know that the archetypal Star Trek um, devotee who will pick them up on any little detail that is not uh, not doable. <laughs> so um, there's no coincidence that uh, fact is following fiction. Well, thank you for talking to us on the Jodcast. Thank you very much. That was Ruth Bamford from Rutherford Appleton Laboratories. Today, I spoke to Matt Griffin, who is uh, involved in the Herschel Telescope. Now, the Herschel Telescope is going to be a space-based sub-millimetre telescope. Now, what that basically means is that um, between infrared and radio, you get this sort of uh, this this section of astronomy that that's not normally you know hasn't had a lot of coverage. But we think there's a lot of interesting things that can be found at this wavelength. And I was talking today to Matt Griffin uh, from the University of Cardiff, who actually works on one of the instruments of the Herschel Telescope, and he was telling me about some of the, the plans for the mission. I'm now talking to Matt Griffin from Cardiff University, who has just given an excellent talk about the Herschel Telescope. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that, Matt? Well, the Herschel Telescope is one of the major cornerstone missions in the European Space Agency's science program. It's a very large uh, observatory costing a total of about 1 billion euros. And it's put together by ESA and by uh, many European space agencies providing the instruments. And I'm responsible uh, for leading one of the consortia building one of the three science instruments that will fly on Herschel. So you said in your talk that you were expecting a, a launch 31st of July 2008. Uh, how likely is that, do you think? Well, uh, as, as with all space satellites, uh, the launch date is always hard-driven in terms of schedule, and one has a target launch date, which can be met if everything goes well. Uh, in reality, there are usually a few delays for one sort or another, so it uh, launches shortly afterwards. But everybody's aiming for 31st of July 2008, and uh, if we don't meet that, it'll go up very quickly afterwards. How does this telescope compare to the James Webb Space Telescope, which is also infrared telescope? Well, when Herschel is launched, it will for a time be the largest astronomical telescope ever flown. It's not as big as the James Webb Space Telescope, but it will go up first. But more importantly, it operates in a different part of the spectrum. The James Webb Space Telescope operates at optical and near-infrared wavelengths, which are very useful for observing stars and um, uh, galaxies uh, in their quiescent uh, periods. 
Herschel will operate at longer wavelengths, and this will allow us to see inside clouds of gas and dust in, in which new stars are forming, both in our own galaxy and in distant galaxies. And we will be able to see things that JWST can't see because literally the activity is obscured from its point of view. So the two observatories together will allow us to see the whole of a galaxy, the stars that already have formed and the stars that are still forming. Matt Griffin, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Matt Griffin from the University of Cardiff. David, talking about um, missions in space, I think you caught up with someone else who's involved in the space mission as well. Yes, I spoke to Martin Barstow today uh, from the University of Leicester, and he, um, he was telling us about the repair mission to the Hubble Space Telescope with specific reference to the UV astronomy that, that he is interested in. And he had, he had quite a lot to say about it. I'm now joined by Professor Martin Barstow of the University of Leicester, who's just given a talk in the future missions section, and he spoke about the future of UV astronomy, focusing on the Hubble Space Telescope. Soon, the Hubble Space Telescope will hopefully be repaired, and uh, some UV capability will will return. Uh, what, What do you have to say? Well, it's not just about the UV, it's about all spectroscopy, because since the Space Telescope Imaging Spectrograph failed, there hasn't really been any good quality spectroscopy available on Hubble at all, in the UV or in the optical. So it's very important for them to put on the new instruments, which is including COS, Cosmic Origin Spectrograph, which is a UV-only facility, but also there's a, a, a plan to repair STIS as well. On the other hand, with the failure of the ACS, uh, it's also going to be essential to put on board the wide-field camera, which is the new imaging camera, and we hope they're, they're going to fix ACS as well. There's a plan being developed right now to repair ACS. It's a bit like giving it a heart bypass. They're going to build a new power supply and actually put the power supply on the outside of the instrument and strap it across the various parts of it to provide new power. A very recent press release by NASA on Hubble suggested that the batteries will only just last until the repair mission with a a slight amount of uncertainty on whether or not the batteries would last at all until the repair mission. What are your feelings on the, the, uh, the probability of, of the mission? Well, the batteries were, f- were decaying, but that seems to have slowed down and almost stopped. So I think the issues about the battery survival in the short term are not very much, a pr- much of a problem now. But it is going to be important to replace those batteries during the repair mission. But one of the complexities is, is do you replace the batteries that are up there now with old batteries that you're reasonably happy about or do you buy new ones uh, and have you got enough time to test them beforehand because obviously the batteries that have been sitting on the ground as spares have been around for a long time now. You're also heavily involved in the World Space Observatory, Uh, how is that coming along? Well that's going very well at the moment, all the various aspects of the World Space Observatory are almost secure, the Russians are leading it and have put it into their uh, revised space programme with a launch probably around 2012 and all the instrument systems are going to be provided by various partners in Europe, and the Germans, the Italians, and the Chinese of China have also signed up to provide some components of that. We hope the UK will be involved in the Chinese long-slit spectrograph. What are the main science goals of the World Space Observatory? The, the principal goal, as we see it, is to probe the cosmic web. One of the things that you can do very well in the ultraviolet, you can't do it any other wavelength, is to observe the intergalactic medium by using distant galaxies as background sources. 
And in particular, what we're looking for is helium that's being redshifted into the ultraviolet at redshifts of three or four. Um, it's a regime that hasn't been probed by anybody so far. So you also have a poster here at NAM. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about, about that? Well, we've been using another UV mission called FUSE, the Far Ultraviolet Spectroscopic Explorer, using white dwarfs as background sources to probe the local interstellar gas, that gas surrounding the solar system within a 100 parsecs or so. And this region is supposed to be a bubble or cavity that's been swept out in the past by some ancient supernova explosion probably three or four million years ago and should, in theory, be full of hot gas. And that supposed hot gas has been used to explain the presence of the soft X-ray background. Unfortunately, what we find when we actually look along these lines of sight that the hot gas that we see isn't actually in interstellar space but is sitting in the stars and that the region surrounding them is more or less devoid of hot material. And that means that it can't be generating any soft X-ray background. So what possible other explanations are there for the soft X-ray background? There has been some speculation for a while that at least a component of the soft X-ray background comes from the heliopause, that region where the solar wind terminates and collides with interstellar space. And uh, through a process called charge exchange, you can generate X-rays. Um, there's been a pretty extensive debate about whether this is a viable mechanism for producing the soft X-ray background. It certainly can't produce it all. There will be an extra component from outside the local bubble. But what we see from nearby is probably produced by this mechanism. That was Martin Barstow from the University of Leicester. Okay, there are plenty of people wandering around. We've got 520 astronomers here. Um, one of them is Chris Lintot, who is famous for being on the sky at night as the co-presenter. But he's also an astronomer himself. I talked to him earlier to find out about his area of astrophysics. Okay, with us now is Chris Lintot of Sky at Night fame, as the label that goes with you everywhere, I'm sure. It is, yes. Yeah. Um, but you are actually a researcher in astronomy. That's right, you? that's my real life, is, um, <laughs> as a postdoc at Oxford working on astrochemistry. So can you just tell us a bit about what you do in astrochemistry? Because I know you've been giving some talks this week. Sure. It's um, a very simple solution to a difficult problem, which is if you think of where stars form in the universe, you immediately think of that Hubble picture of the pillars of creation. So the big clouds of dust. Yeah, the dark, dusty clouds. But that's all you get if you look at them in the optical. We want to see inside those to look at where the stars are either forming or just about to form. Mm. So to do that, you go to longer wavelengths. In particular, you use the submillimeter. It's the same frequency as your microwave operates on. Right, the microwave ovens. Exactly. And what that does is it gives you the signatures of a whole series of chemicals which are associated with star formation. Mm. Some of them are familiar, like water, for example, um, ethanol, which you've probably come across once or twice in your life, (laughs) and then a few strange things, uh, hydrogen cyanide, and there are about 120 different molecules that have been discovered in space. And by studying these, you can get a huge amount of information about the physical properties of the, the forming star, but also about mm. their history. What makes up the gas which is going to go on and form the star? How did that collapse? How fast did that collapse? Yeah. And all of this is encoded in those molecular signatures. Now, what I do is take models that people have worked really hard on for the last 30 years to explain Milky Way star formation and try and throw it out to the early universe, to distant galaxies, and see what chemistry can tell us about those. Right, that sounds very interesting. But also you do the sky at night. We have to ask you about the sky at night. You're welcome to ask me about (laughs) the sky at night. World famous sky at night. 
tell us about the the fiftieth anniversary because that's this year. And it you is had your, your special programs quite recently. That's right. It's a, it's been a great honour to be working. Well, it's always an honour to work on the program. But for the fiftieth anniversary, this is something that I think people have been looking forward to for the last twenty years. <laughs> so we desperately wanted to do something that felt like a celebration and which was fun while having a lot of astronomy in it because the sky mm. one of the things that people forget is that the sky night's never been afraid to have a bit of fun with the subject yeah if you go back through the archives you find occasional things like heather cooper being projected onto a hertzsprung russell <laughs> diagram or michael benteen and patrick being replaced by aliens um we wanted to have part of that tradition too so yep. we came up with this idea of looking 50 years back to the very different world of 1957 and then 50 years forward to the future as well. And it's quite nice because it ties in with the, the launch of Sputnik as well. It was the same year. You know, it's a new, it was an incredible time 50 years ago. National Geophysical Year. Exactly. This launch of the space race. There was obviously a burst of interest in astronomy as well because I've had so many invitations this year and last year to do, talk at 50th anniversary events for local astronomical societies. Mm. So space was definitely on people's minds. Yeah. Even before Sputnik, Jodrell, of course. Yeah, the little telescope was completed. Years. And we wanted to get a sense of, of what that world was like because it was very different from where we were now. If you look mm. at what we knew, then it's almost mind-boggling. For example, take Mars. There was serious argument that the dark areas on Mars had to be vegetation. Was that still going? Yeah, and it sounds ridiculous yeah. now, but the, the, the justification is very sensible. Mars is a dusty planet. Mm. Any features are going to get covered in dust. We know it has dust storms. So therefore, the only features that remain must be pushing up through the dust. What does that? Well, it's plants. Of course, that's the opposite to the real answer. It's the dark areas are areas where the dust has been blown away. But it, it's things like that that bring home how much life has changed in 50 years. Well, that yes. in the dress sense. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was quite fun watching the, that Sky at Night issue. And you had um, John Kilshaw, the impressionist. That's right, being yes. The young version of Patrick. Yeah, that was a master show. That was a, our producer's idea, Jane Fletcher, who never gets enough credit for everything that happens behind the scenes. But the art, you see, the first program wasn't recorded. Some of the archive has been lost, but most of the early programs were never recorded because tape and film were mm. expensive. Plus, it was only television. Why would anyone want to watch television again? So There's not the, been anything found in anyone's garden shed or anything? We do have a program from 1957, not a sky at night, right. but um, a program called Frontiers, which was a general, very formal chat show with Patrick on it, discussing the RAF's attempt to produce a spacesuit. Uh, <laughs> was that successful? Uh, well, it was an interesting design. I, th- I think it was in response. It was just after Sputnik. So it was a what what will happen next type of affair. So it's interesting to see that world. And um, I don't think the basics of television haven't changed. You try and tell the story as clearly as you can, hmm. but not miss anything out. And that's what we're still trying to do. But to go back to John Colshaw... Um, so we had bits of archive, and we thought we could cobble something together and have Patrick interview the archive. So, you know, mm. so Patrick, what do you think about Venus? And get the archive clip from 1960 that says, well, Venus's day is very long, or whatever else. But we found out John Colshaw is an amateur astronomer. Oh, and he's an excellent. amateur astronomer whose first ever impression was of Patrick. Fantastic. And um, we recruited him, and the moment when we had the two Patricks in the same room talking to each other was, it was actually quite special. So John was a great spot. Patrick, um, who wrote most of the script, really, I think he enjoyed himself. And <laughs> it, was, it was nice to have part of that world. Odd to see it in colour, because you forget that the people, were, if you're physically there, the people there were, were in, in colour. They weren't all black and white or sepia, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then we wanted to go forward, because this is not the end of the sky at night. 
our next anniversary programme, which goes out first Sunday in May, is the second half of the party, which is lots of looking back, lots of how was it for you, and lots of archive, which would be mm. great. But we wanted to make the point we're not stopping. We're planning June. And so the we next thought, 50 years. Exactly. I want to go to the 100th anniversary party <laughs> at the Sky at Night. So we skipped forward. But, of course, Patrick still had to present it because this, yeah. is, this is a celebration of what he's done. So, clearly... Oh, he's you the longest-running continuous presenter, I think, in the world. Absolutely. Like yeah, and that record will never be beaten. There Just won't missed be one episode because of... Of a duck egg yeah. or a goose egg. I, can't re- I can never remember which. It depends who's telling the story. Right. What happened there was that he was in hospital when we were supposed to be recording the programme. We recorded the programme without him. And luckily, by the time of broadcast, he had recovered enough to, to advise us on what we wanted. And the BBC offered to delay the programme for a week right. so that he could present it. And he refused because he said the programme was much more important. And that sums up his attitude to, to the whole thing. That's a great attitude, actually. And I have to comment here that I think the BBC mess around with the sky at night and they put it on at an awful time. I'm sure you can't say anything about this. I agree. But they put it on an awful time of the night. I mean, I know astronomers are supposed to be up at night, but... It is frustrating when you put a lot of work into something and then it goes out at, at two in the morning. But, um, yeah, hopefully it matters less than it ever has done because people do record it. And, of course, you can see the last three years' worth of uh, sky at Nights at our, on our website, which is bbc.co.uk slash Sky at Night. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes as Excellent. well. Excellent. Good. Um, so people can watch online to all three years' worth of programmes. Yeah, it goes back just a bit more than that now. We're coming up to four years of archive on there. It's only a small window, but you can hide it in the corner and get on with some work while listening. <laughs> well, that's excellent. Thank you very much for talking to us. A pleasure. I they don't just... know why they don't put it on at a better time. Just on, I don't know, half past five on a Saturday. There's nothing on. Yeah. Why not put, <laughs> yeah. you know... <laughs> They have a slot on Sunday morning, don't they, when they put Countryfile on? I mean, come on. Oh, Countryfile's <laughs> got a good weather forecast. Exactly. You but can apart go from the astronomy that. after that. Did <laughs> not repeat the skirt night on a Sunday morning or something already? It's on a Saturday it's morning on BBC Two. Yeah, late morning lunchtime, isn't it? But and it's repeated on, on BBC though. Three, I think, as well. Mm. On a Monday night, possibly. At a more reasonable hour. But it is at least on the web, so you can always go and watch it. David, you also talked to someone else. Tell us who they were. Very recently, there have been uh, dramatic changes in the study of exoplanets. Now, these are planets around other stars. What's happened is we've been detecting them through various means for quite a while. But other than knowing that they're there, we haven't been able to find out anything more about them because they're so far away. The star that they're going around is so bright in comparison, you're just being blinded, almost like trying to spot a, a little tiny glowworm on the side of a car headlight or something. You just wouldn't see it. But using some very, very interesting techniques and using eclipses, Peter Wheatley from the University of Warwick have actually managed to obtain information about the light that comes from planets. And so I spoke to him today, and this is what he had to say. Could you tell me, uh, Peter, what have, uh, what have you been doing recently? Well, what I, what I was presenting in my talk this week was um, data from a, a space telescope called the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is a, as a NASA mission, which works in the uh, mid-infrared part of the spectrum. Um, and that's, that's a part of the spectrum where the light from uh, planets around other stars peaks. So it's our, it's our best opportunity to detect, directly detect planets around other stars. Uh, the problem we have is that because these planets are very close to their parent stars, uh, normal imaging techniques don't work. So you can't form a separate image of the star and the planets. So you have to find some indirect way of measuring the brightness of the planets. Uh, and the way we do that is we find um, special examples of systems 
where the planet actually passes across the face of the star, blocking some of the light from the star. And then the amount of light it blocks tells us how big the, star, the planet is. Um, but then half an orbit later, the planet goes behind the star. And at that point, we lose the light from the planet. So if we make very, very careful measurements with Spitzer, we can detect the brightness of the star apparently dropping by about a quarter of 1%. That allows us to uh, infer how bright the planet itself must be. This is the only way we have of measuring the brightness of planets around other stars. And this is the first time this has ever been done? Now, it's been done a few times. It's been done about four times with four different planets. Yet, as I say, you need this very special kind of system where the planet passes in front of the star. Now, I was presenting uh, results from a planet that was discovered by a UK uh, mission called the uh, SuperWASP uh, program. And uh, so we, we recently discovered uh, two, uh, two uh, extrasolar planets with, with the WASP program. And uh, we, I was observing one of these. It's particularly interesting because it orbits a star that's very hot, hotter than any other star of this type, that with an extrasolar planet. And so because the star's hot, we think it actually heats the planet. So we expect this planet to be one of the hottest of these uh, extrasolar planets. And so what I was looking for was um, to see whether the brightness of the planet was higher which would indicate that it is actually indeed hotter. And that is what we found. The, the, the planet itself seems to be about three times brighter than the only other planets we've observed at that, uh, that wavelength. Um, and that seems to be also possibly related to its temperature, but also possibly related, related to the actual chemical composition of the atmosphere. So the atmosphere is believed to be dominated by maybe water and carbon monoxide. There's also the possibility of uh, titanium oxide in the atmosphere, and that can change the pattern of brightness at different wavelengths. And that's what we may have seen in this system. What advances do you predict uh, in, in the field of exoplanets when we have such telescopes as Herschel and the James Webb Space Telescope online? The James Webb Space Telescope is particularly exciting because um, it's got a very large mirror, which allows us to look at much fainter systems, and also smaller planets um, around brighter systems as well. So, so it really opens up a whole a much wider range of uh, extrasolar planets. And there's a particularly exciting mission being launched next year by NASA called Kepler, which is designed, it's a space mission designed to find uh, very small planets orbiting stars uh, and transiting stars. And um, certainly that, those kind of smaller planets will need a much more sensitive instrument to measure their brightness. What is the future of uh, the WASP project? Well, that's very exciting because we, as I say, in our first season we had sort of a pilot program where we looked at a, uh, we took, had sort of five cameras looking at the sky searching for extrasolar planets just for a few months. We found two planets in those data. But since then, we've been spending um, over a year working with 16 cameras, scanning the sky for more planets. And we're just analysing those data at the moment. So the WASP Consortium, which is made up of uh, a whole range of UK universities, hope this year to be announcing uh, of order 10 or maybe even 20 new extrasolar planets. And these are the special planets that pass across in front of the star and allow us then to measure the brightness of the planet using instruments like Spitzer. Excellent. Peter Wheatley, thank you very much. No, no, this is the first time that this has happened, and there is a little fleet of papers coming out, uh, press releases, that because they think they can actually detect the light of the planet, they can get a spectrum. And already people are saying that they can see things like silicon. I was going to say that's when it starts to get exciting, when you can start to tell what's in the atmosphere of these planets. Exactly, because people are looking for the, the telltale traces of life. Like water and methane. Yes. OK, so that's pretty much it for today. There's not quite so many sessions tomorrow, but we've saved a few interviews over for tomorrow um, just to stop this from being about five hours long, really. Come back tomorrow for more. Meanwhile, if you have any feedback for us, um, send us some feedback via the website at www.jodcast.net. So, that's goodbye from all of us here at NAM. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.
the Jodcast. Not afraid to take it to the big guys. Nam 2007, day five. Welcome to the end of day five of the Jodcast at NAM, the National Astronomy Meeting in Preston in the United Kingdom. It's, well, I say it's the end of day five. It's actually 2 p.m. in the afternoon as we're recording this. Um, but conferences tend to end early on a Friday so that people have a chance to head off back home. Um, quite a lot of people have already headed off home and there's not very many of us left. We've still got Megan, however. Hello. So we have a few more interviews for you today. Coming up, we've got Chris Davis talking about Stereo, which is a mission to look at the sun. He actually talked to the Jodcast a few months ago, and we got an update from him. We also have Helen Walker from Rutherford Appleton Laboratories talking about Mars Express. And we also have Mike Bode from Liverpool John Moores University talking about RS Afuki, the recurrent Nova star, which Tim was talking about last year. So we get the latest on that. So, Megan, it's been a fun week, I think. It has. It's been a long week. It's been, <laughs> it's been a very long week. <laughs> We've had, hardly had any sleep, I think. No, but there's been an awful lot of interesting science going on. There has. Um, what particularly caught your eye this week? Well, there's been an awful lot of interesting sessions going on, and it's always nice to hear about other areas of astrophysics that you don't necessarily come into contact with at your own institution. That's always good to meet other people. It is, yeah. But a lot of the technology, the f- new facilities, stuff that went on over the last couple of days has been quite interesting, finding about current instruments and where they're going next and the new facilities that are going to be available in the next few years. So what's exciting in new facilities? What's coming up? Well, I'm particularly looking forward to ALMA because of what I do on Starburst Galaxies. ALMA is the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, which is going to be a collection of up to 64 individual telescopes on a a mountaintop in Chile, working in the submillimeter part of the spectrum. So very, very high up. Very, very high up to avoid as much of the atmosphere as possible without actually going into space. And what will it be looking at? Well, it's going to do submillimeter astronomy. It's going to do... Um, the reason I'm interested is because we're going to be able to look at an awful lot of spectral lines. So we're going to be able to look at all sorts of different molecules within our own galaxy and within other galaxies as well. Which would be quite interesting for star formation studies. Very good. Anything else catch your attention? I know you're at the Starburst Galaxies and your star formation today. Um, one of the plenary talks this morning was by Dr Doug Johnson from the NRC in Canada. And he was talking about star formation within the Milky Way in the era of, of large surveys and exquisite resolution. So he was talking about surveys of large large clouds of star formation within our galaxy. So you've got big clouds of gas with star formation happening inside it, and he was looking at where the star formation is actually occurring. Right. And people often assume that it's occurring everywhere within these clouds, but it's not. It's occurring in, in small patches here and there. So that was interesting. If I remember properly, he had a map showing you this region with all these bits where the stars were, were forming. And then they decided to look a wider area around that. Yeah, that's right. They decided to, to, to do more fields around the area. to they they had hundred or something stars they thought were forming in that region. Yeah, in this one field of view. And they thought, well, if we do another five fields of view, we'll find 500 of these sources. And they mapped it and using lots and lots they of telescope this big, time. This big image of... Fantastically nice, big, sensitive image. And they found two. <laughs> so it seemed like a bit of a waste of time yeah, having well, done all that. Not necessarily. It, it tells you something about the star formation, so a null result is still a result. Yes. And then the star formation session, which followed on from that after the, the coffee break, was, well, several people talking about various different surveys of star formation. So we had um, talks about surveys using Spitzer Space Telescope, an infrared instrument. And we had quite a few talks as well about um, results from an instrument called HARP, 
which stands for Heterodyne Array Receiver Project, which is an instrument on the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope, the JCMT. Oh, that's um, another of those acronyms. We've had loads of acronyms this week. Yeah, far too many of them. It's difficult to keep up with them all. Yes, it gets very confusing. Well, HARP is basically a, a 16-element detector, and it takes images and... Well, you get images because you've got 16 pixels, effectively, and each one takes a spectrum. So you get an awful lot of data with each observation. And lots of people have been using it to look at star formation in our galaxy, a lot of work on carbon monoxide and its distribution in star formation regions. So we had several talks on that today. So star formation clouds in Perseus, in Lupus, in various other parts of the sky as well. Sounds interesting. Um, unfortunately, I missed those talks because I was across in the astro and helioseismology session. Right, so what, what interesting things are happening in helio and astro seismology? Sounds quite exciting. It is, and it's basically people looking at the changes in brightness of stars. I mean, it started looking at the sun, our nearest star, the sun, and looking at the changes in brightness of the sun, sun's disk. And that helps you probe the inside of the sun. A bit like studying the seismic waves due to earthquakes on the Earth helps you work out what the internal structure of the Earth looks like. Uh, they do the same thing on the sun. so they can Sunquakes. Basically, sun, sunquakes, yeah. So you might have an eruption and it will send ripples through the interior of the sun and around the surface of the sun. And by being very careful with your measurements, you can work out what's going on inside. So that was looking at our sun. Um, but you can take the same technique, you can apply it to other stars. So we had people looking at various stars. There was Procyon, there was Alpha Centauri A and Alpha Centauri B. And people were basically trying to work out the internal structures of these other stars by looking at how they change in brightness. Can you see them in, in much detail? They're a long way away. Well, I think, if I remember rightly, Alpha Centauri A was thought to, from the measurements, was thought to be rotating 20% faster than our sun. Wow. The internal rotation, that is. Mm. So I was pretty blown away by the fact that you could work these things out. That's quite incredible. Stars. Yeah. So it was a very interesting session. Anyway, talking about the sun... Yes. And solar physics. There have, has been an awful lot of solar physics here at the National Astronomy Meeting because it's also been joined by the UK solar physics community. Appropriate. It has been a very sunny week as well. And one of the solar missions that the UK has involvement with is Stereo, which are two spacecraft that NASA launched late last year. And Chris Davis, who talked to the Jodcast back in February, is working on Stereo, and we caught up with him for a bit of an update. Hi, Chris. Hi there. Um, can you give us a roundup of what's happened to Stereo since we last talked to you? Um, when we last talked to you, we were, we were busy commissioning the cameras. The cameras are all now commissioned, everything's working great, and we're getting some fantastic results back. We've had uh, coronal mass ejections, we've had uh, a couple of comets, we weren't expecting to have so many comets, and uh, an army of enthusiasts have been unearthing all kinds of near-Earth objects and, and asteroids in the, in the star field, so we're having a great time. And how's the status of the website? Are uh, things now accessible via the website? Yep, we've got uh, daily and uh, monthly movies available at the website, and you can see some fantastic features in the data. Um, so you can actually look to see uh, mass ejections for yourself. And, and if anyone sees any, we'd be appreciated if they'd actually tell us, because one of the <laughs> things that we, we have struggling to find time is actually identifying all the events. Um, so, yeah, you can, you can download those movies. They're, they're freely accessible. The data is also accessible um, from the same website. That's uh, stereo.rl.ac.uk. You can download the data, play with the data. Do what, what format does the data. the data come in? The data comes in FITS formats, uh, which is a standard astronomical um, uh, format for image files, but a lot of um, software 
actually reads FITS files now. And I think so there's a plugin for Photoshop that the European Space Agency made, didn't they? Yes, there are. There are all kinds of ways that you can you can do that. But also there are dedicated FITS viewers that you can buy. There's a, there's a package called FV, which I assume stands for FITS viewer, yeah. and you can download images, you can manipulate images, you can study smaller regions of it, and you can really sort of have a good get your hands really dirty with the data now. So what's going to be happening with Stereo from now on? Are you now in routine operation mode? Yeah, it's a synoptic operation, which means that we take the same measurements, whatever. Um, right. So we take uh, images every hour, and it takes us an hour to, to gather enough light to see these coronal mass ejections in our cameras. Um, but what will be changing is the position of the spacecraft. They're going to move away from the Earth, um, and we're gradually going to start to image the space between the Sun and the Earth. So what will happen in the next few months to uh, the next couple of years is we'll be looking at the region of space where these mass ejections will be affecting the Earth. So we'll be able to give uh, an advanced warning of about two days of anything that's heading towards the Earth. And that's where the exciting science is going to be able to come because we're going to be able to alert people running spacecraft missions around the Earth, running radars on the ground, and we can get a much better picture of this whole sequence of events as uh, particles come from the Sun towards the Earth. Fantastic. Well, hopefully we'll catch up with you near the end of the year and find out what's happened with Stereo. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be so much more to tell you by then, yeah. Thanks. OK, that was Chris Davis from Rutherford Appleton Laboratories talking about the Stereo mission. So, Stereo is a NASA spacecraft. So, Stereo is a NASA spacecraft, but the European Space Agency, ESA, have quite a few spacecraft flying around the solar system as well. And one of those is Mars Express, which has been in orbit around Mars for over two years and has been sending back some quite impressive pictures of the surface of Mars, finding evidence possibly of water at some point in the history of Mars. And Stuart went to talk to Helen Walker, who's also from Rutherford Appleton Laboratories, about the Mars Express mission. OK, so you work on the Mars Express project. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm, um, work, I actually work on the science operations planning for Mars Express, so the job I actually do is scientists all across Europe send me in their observations and I try and pack as many into the timetable as possible. So what I have to worry about is, are we going to drain the batteries? Are we going to get all the data back to Earth before it overflows the computer memory on board? And uh, can all the instruments work together or do they start uh, interfering with each other? So when did Mars Express first arrive at the Red Planet? Uh, Mars Express was launched in June 2003, and it took about six months to get there. And so the actual real science started in January 2004, so we've been going for just over three years now. And can you give us a, a sort of a highlight of the science that's come out of Mars Express so far? The interesting thing about Mars Express being a European satellite is that the Europeans are very interested in the atmosphere as well as the surface. When you see what the Americans do, particularly with the rovers, mm. they're very interested in the actual ground, the surface of Mars. And the Europeans have actually brought a new dimension to the problem. And one of the great things they found is where the water was originally. And right. this has caused them to talk to the Americans who are about to launch the Phoenix lander. And they wanted to land it at what looked like a river delta. Right. But when you actually think about it, they're saying, no, the river delta appeared when there was a flash flood. So there was water there, but it was only there briefly. So and then what it caused the flash flood? Probably either a volcanic eruption or a meteor impact. Right. And, you know, the subsurface water or subsurface ice was heated up, flowed along this channel, gave you a kind of quick flash flood, and then it vanished. Right. And so that's not where you want to be. 
they've now found out that you get these things they're called phyllosilicates. And what it means, phyllo is from phyllo pastry. It's layers. <laughs> it's great. You look it up in the dictionary, you think, ah, yes, I know what phyllo means. But what it is is that there had to be standing water there for a long time to get these layers of silicate rocks. Silicates. Yeah, and so you get sedimentary rock on Mars, which, you know, is incredible. And that's been a Mars Express discovery. Now, of course, now the NASA rovers, NASA scientists know this. They found sedimentary rocks as well. And so it looks as though there could have been an awful lot of water there a very long time ago. One of the other exciting things, I think, you know, we've just had a talk this morning about um, the magnetic uh, problems and looking after astronauts in space. Mm. What we found on Mars is uh, the NASA scientists found there were magnetic anomalies. What the European scientists have found with Mars Express is that you can get aurora over these magnetic anomalies. Now, nobody had ever imagined looking for aurora on Mars. So these magnetic anomalies just explain what exactly they are? They're they're outcrops of magnetic rock. Again, Mars doesn't have a magnetic field now. But once upon a time, it had a magnetic field, and this is the last sort of fossil of it. And so if you wanted a Mars base, you should put it on one of these magnetic anomalies, and then you get the kind of protection from the energetic solar particles. Right. And so it's as though you've sort of got like the, a bit of a sort of mini-Earth magnetic field looking after you when you're on, in the Mars base. Very good. Um, so what does the future hold for Mars Express? How much longer does the mission have to go? We are doing very well for fuel. We can keep going for an awful long time. I think the estimates seem to range between 10 and 20 years, depending on how you do the sums. Wow, that's that's a substantial (laughs) length of time. Yes, it's going to be the funding that kills us, but the European Space Agency have looked at the science that's being done with Mars Express, and they've extended it now to the middle of May 2009. But um, the latest... I've heard is that in 2008 the science goals will be reviewed and if Mars Express is still doing exciting, world-leading science, uh, we could be allowed to bid for another two years to 2011. Well, we wish you the best of luck with that bid Um, and thank you very much for talking to us on the Jodcast. Thank you very much. That was Helen Walker from Rutherford Appleton Laboratories. Okay, that was Mars. We're going to leap out of the solar system now and go to something completely different, nova stars. Last year there was an outburst from recurrent nova RS Afuki, which has an outburst every 20 years or so, and I caught it with Mike Bode of Liverpool John Moores University to find out more. Okay, with us is Professor Mike Bode from Liverpool John Moores University. You're presenting some research on the recurrent nova RS off. Yes, the uh, the work I was presenting was a continuation of uh, a lot of work that's been going on on the latest outburst of this recurrent nova. Just remind us when that was. It was uh, February the twelfth, the end of February the twelfth, two thousand and six. So it's just over a year ago, and it was the first time it had had an outburst for twenty one years. The interesting thing about this object, and there's lots of interesting stuff, but uh, is that uh, it's a binary system where the explosion, which occurs on the component that's uh, a white dwarf, that uh, explosion throws material out at several thousand kilometres per second into the wind that's coming off its companion, which is a red giant. And when the two things impact, you get uh, shock systems set up with temperatures perhaps an order of magnitude higher than the core temperature of the sun. Mm. Uh, the other interesting thing, among many interesting things, is that the white dwarf star is actually near to the maximum mass a white dwarf can have, which is the so-called Chandrasekhar mass limit. 
and we believe that mass may be being added net over a long period of time. So it's getting closer and closer to that limit, and eventually it would uh, become a supernova. This is mass from the companion star being yeah, added on. Yeah, indeed, yeah. It's, it's, uh, mass is being uh, accreted from the companion star onto the white dwarf, eventually conditions as such that you get this runaway thermonuclear explosion occurring right. um, that leads to the nova being seen in the sky and the ejection of material and so on. So what are the results this week that you're announcing? Well, what we had done uh, in a project led by Tim O'Brien from Jodrell Bank about a year ago, as soon as we'd heard uh, of the outburst, um, we used um, radio interferometers, the very long baseline radio interferometers, such as the uh, VLBA, which is centered in the U.S. but stretches all the way from Hawaii to the U.S. Virgin Islands, and the uh, European VLBI network to perform very high spatial resolution observations of the expanding uh, remnant, if you like, of this explosion. And uh, uh, the first observations were taken only two weeks after the outburst and showed a ring-like structure, which was uh, consistent with expansion velocities of something like 1,800 kilometers per second and consistent with the position of the shocks, uh, the forward shock, as the ejector hitting the uh, red giant wind. We expected from our X-ray data, which we'd already got in the bag uh, from three days after the outburst. What was that with? Uh, that was with the SWIFT satellite, right. uh, the data that we got, and we followed it, and we're still following it even now, actually, with SWIFT. Um, it's still a, it's a faint X-ray source now, but at the time it, was the, it became the brightest so-called super soft X-ray source that uh, anything had ever observed. We actually found that the, those super soft X-rays were probably coming right from the central remnant rather than from this um, shock interaction region. And that's another story. It's something that gives us a handle on the mass of the white dwarf and mm. whether it will become a supernova or not. Anyway, we saw the, the structures then and uh, subsequent uh, radio observations showed that outside that ring were two, to use an astronomically technical term, uh, blobs <laughs> of material that uh, were expanding obviously at, at higher velocities and could be associated with some sort of uh, jet-like flow, some sort of collimated flow from the central object. Um, so lots of very interesting phenomena. We realized, and it was a, a real back-of-the-envelope calculation, that we may be able to detect after a few months mm. the emission uh, from this extended material using the Hubble Space Telescope. And um, we'd missed all the normal deadlines, so we applied for what's called director's discretionary time on the Hubble, and we got it. We got two orbits, and uh, when we uh, finally uh, got to observe it, which was by this time July, so it's about 150 days after the outburst, even in the raw images you could see that this thing was not just a point source. And uh, by uh, various sort of image enhancement techniques, if you like, deconvolution techniques, we were able to uh, determine that this emission was in the form of something that looked like two rings, but exactly the size that you'd expect from the continued expansion of the radio blobs that we'd seen earlier. Right, so you knew how fast the radio blobs were yeah. moving. Yeah, that's right. And we predicted how far out this material will be, and uh, uh, and this is pretty much coincident with uh, with that sort of dimension. So what's giving this, uh, well, the radio blobs, that sort of structure, and also this ring-like structure that we see in the optical? And um, together with uh, Dan Harmon in, in JMU, this was modeled as, if you imagine a peanut, a peanut-shaped 
uh, nebula that you now incline. So you're looking part partway along this inclined peanut, right. and uh, you then imagine that it's just the the shell of the peanut that you're seeing, mm. rather than the filled thing. And you incline it, then you'd see this structure that is very very similar to our double ring structure. And right. it turns out that the inclination of this is consistent with the inclination of the central binary orbit. So it now links back and suggests that the highest velocity material is moving in, a, in directions that are at right angles to that plane of the binary orbit. And so what's causing that? So what's the so-called collimation mechanism mm. of this? And a favoured explanation is that it is actually material in the orbital plane prior to the outburst. The material in the orbital plane is rather denser than the uh, material at the poles. Right. And so it tends to entrain the... So all uh, this stuff that's thrown yeah. off the yeah. star has to go one way, yeah. the easiest way. The easiest way, if you like. Yeah. That's right, that's right. Yeah, and that's, that's why we see this sort of shape. Uh, but we really need to explore that uh, some more. That's, that's a, a sort of first-order model. The important things that come out of this study are that we we get the real uh, if we, if, we, if this all ties together and it starts to explain lots of features of, of the outburst, including the way that the X-ray emission evolved, that we seem to need a, a pretty dense medium for uh, the ejector to run into, and that would be along this equatorial plane for the X-rays to evolve as quickly as they do. There's evidence of dust in Orisov-Yuki, which seems to be there both before and after the outburst, but the shocks would destroy it. So where is it? Well, if it's in this region that's very dense, the shocks haven't got to it yet, and it, it right. survives the outburst. So that would, that would help to explain that. Um, Will it have to have survived many outbursts as well because RSF is yeah. a recurrent nova? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Right. The, 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 it would have to um, survive. It, well, it depends what happens between the outbursts because the wind will re-establish okay. itself. But uh, but in the time scale the observations were, were taken on, then it seems that it does actually survive between you know right. pretty much between the outbursts. It's in a region that's pretty pretty protected. So Although uh, Nye Evans at Keel is doing a lot more work on those bits of data, so that's a very preliminary uh, interpretation, I guess. So would there be any chance of any planets forming in this? dense cloud Ooh, of material? That's a, an off-the-wall question. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a, it's a... Well, the one thing you could say, it's not a system where you'd uh, expect to be looking for inhabited planets, certainly. <laughs> it's, uh, not with Nova uh, going off no, every 20 years or so. No, you've only got uh, a couple of decades for evolution to occur, so uh, it's, it's not going to be somewhere that you'd uh, want to live. Yeah, I mean, planets are seen in... Uh, in increasingly uh, increasing numbers. I think there's something like 224 exoplanets now known. Um, yeah. One or two have been found in uh, uh, pulsar systems, haven't they? Yeah. So, you know, they've survived actually uh, yeah. supernova explosions. So, yeah. Um, but the other thing is, knowing the inclination of everything, we now get the true velocities. And we find that the ejection velocities along the pole are something like 6,000 kilometers per second, which is starting to get up towards the velocities you see in uh, supernova explosions. Right. I'm not saying this is, you know, the mechanism is very different in this case from a supernova explosion, but something is leading to very high uh, velocities of ejection. And with a very high mass white dwarf in there, then you do need very high velocities to escape from the surface in the first place. So... It begins to tie everything together in terms of our interpretation of the radio results, our knowledge of 
the central binary uh, and the circumstellar environment. So GHST, again, has played a major role in starting to unravel um, uh, an astronomical mystery. Are there many more observations possible or planned at the moment? Yeah, we've got uh, three more orbits of HST time. Those are to be scheduled, but hopefully will be done as soon as possible. Uh, The problem now, of course, is the whole outburst is subsiding, Mm. and although, as I said before, we still detect it as an X-ray source, it's it's a weak source. And undoubtedly, the uh, nebulosity that uh, we're looking for with HST, uh, although it would be bigger and in that sense easier to see against this very bright central star, on the other hand, it will have faded. um, So that will counteract. And so it's a balance between the two, and eventually it will fade away altogether. Um, So hopefully we'll catch it before it's gone below the detectability uh, level with the HST. Uh, Otherwise, we're going to have to wait another couple of decades. Right, well, thank you for talking to us on the Jodcast. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, that was Mike Bode there of Liverpool John Moores University. Okay, so that's the end of Jodcast at the National Astronomy Meeting in Preston. We do actually have a couple of other interviews, but we're going to hold those back and use those on future Jodcasts. So stay tuned. Stay tuned indeed, (laughs) yes. But anyway... That just leaves us to say thank you to all the people who we've pestered and interviewed this week. Thank you for putting up with us. Thank you to David Boyce of the University of Leicester, who did many of our interviews this week. And thanks also to Megan and Nick, the Jodcast regulars. So join us for the May edition, and until then, goodbye. Bye. Bye.